0: Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Air, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. All right, Matthew chapter 5, uh, continuing our walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Uh, This is why it's important to sequentially work through books of the Bible. Jim and I both have uh, a conviction, uh, one of the things that this, to to do such things, because it forces you to preach the whole text of Scripture. Like, not many places that you go do you think, well, I think what I'm going to pick up and preach on this week is the sin of lust in the heart. Uh, But... You know, as you're working sequentially through books of the Bible, it, it, you don't get to you don't get to pick your pet topics and skip like the harder, more serious ones. And so um, that's one of the convictions we have. And so there are literally ten thousands of ways to address this text. And so uh, you know, we're going to just dip our toes into it a little bit this morning and pray that it is beneficial. This is Matthew chapter five, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. Keep your finger there in that text. And as we get started, I want you to flip to Ephesians chapter 2 as well just by a little bit of a way of introduction, because I want to remind us of the role of the law in the life of the king's people. I mean, this is the Sermon on the Mount, this specific section, six little pericopes, six little areas that Jesus is going to talk to, is an exposition of the law, essentially, and he's giving us the right interpretation of god's law and so what is the role of the law just by the way of reminder what is the role of the law in the life of the king's people and so we look at a a text like ephesians 2 8 through 9 i i just I, i felt obligated this week as i was thinking about this text to remind us because this text is crushing this text is crushing Like, it's hard, and and there's a conviction when you're preaching that not only do you want the point of the sermon, the point of the passage to be the point of the sermon, you want the ethos, the the sort of the atmosphere of the sermon, of the text, to be the atmosphere of the sermon. So it has a real serious edge to it. And so I want us to remember what the role then of the law is in the life of the king's people. And so we look at a passage like Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, 8, 9, and 10, excuse me, don't leave verse 10 off. Starting in verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For... We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by works so that no one can boast. So I said at the introduction that this whole section, really the whole Sermon on the Mount, is a description of how the King's people live like the King's people. It is not to be read as a way to help you become one of the King's people. Okay? And I, I just I want to re-emphasize that every time we get a chance to talk about the law of God because it is so easy to flip this around and begin to think that as we have this high standard of the law, somehow this is how we are now meriting God's favor upon us. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is one of the clearest places we have that just will flat out tell you we are saved by grace through faith, not according to works so that no one can boast. We won't get to heaven one day and say, God, aren't you proud of me of all the great things that I did? Therefore, you must let me into your kingdom. No, it's not boasting in what we have done. It is boasting in who Christ is and what he has done. But then you can't leave verse 10 off of here. So then what's the role of the law? Like, we tend to flip either end of the pendulum. It's like, well, if we're saved by grace through faith, thank goodness, and this is what Paul addresses in Romans 5 and 6, well, then live however we want. To God be the glory, we can just do whatever we want, and God's going to save us by grace through faith. Well, no, Paul goes on, and he says that we, though, are then saved for good works. <laughs> that this salvation that has been wrought in us is not produced by our good works, but it does produce good works. It's not produced by them, but it does then produce them. We live by faith. Yes, we are saved by God's grace, faith in Christ and in His work. And we also seek to mortify the sin that remains. And walk out the obedience of this life that is in front of us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Both of these things exist in the life of the King's people, rejoicing that their salvation is not by their own hand, but is by Jesus Christ, by his work on the cross, by his obedience, by his sacrifice. And at the same time, we desire to live a life that pleases him. So we mortify sin, put it to death, seek to walk in obedience, not to get saved but because we are and we want to honor the king. All right, so we're just, that's, that is what Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 is telling us, is this reality. So then we ask, what is the role of the law in the life of the king's people? What is the role of the law in the life of the king's people? And typically there's, um, there's we talk about the three uses of the law if you're into Reformation theology at all. It talks about the three uses of the law. And they are a mirror, a belt, and and a, and a light. A mirror, a belt, and a light. It, the law of God is a mirror because its main work is to just expose your own sin. <laughs> that's what the law. That's what the law does. Is it says here's the standard, and uh, I don't know if you've noticed, you didn't clear it. <laughs> it's a it's a mirror to show like this is this is where the law. This is what God demands. And as, as God speaks it out to us, like Paul talks about, he didn't know what idolatry was, but as soon as he heard from the law what idolatry was, boy, he found all sorts of idolatry in his own heart. The law is a mirror. It crushes us. When, and don't ever let anyone tell you that Christianity is about keeping the rules because, it, because there is this backwards thinking of Christianity is just about keeping God's law. It is about the perfect law keeper, Jesus Christ, who we believe in and cling to his righteousness, cling to his sacrifice, but then, yes, try to live in a way and seek to live empowered by the Holy Spirit, a life that glorifies him, not to become a Christian, but because we are a Christian, right? So the law is a mirror. It convicts us of sin. The second use of the law is a little more ambiguous. It's like a belt. And so you look how society is... Is, is constrained by the law. There's, we, we have a law not to murder, which is, is a constraint really kind of out of uh, the Ten Commandments, right, to not murder, that society's like, hey, that's a good law. We should just have that generally applied. Whether you believe in Yahweh God or not, you know, is a bad thing. So there's, it's, a, it's a mirror, it's a belt, but it also is a light. It shows us what the path of righteousness is convicts us of our own sin, reveals it, constrains community, constrains culture, and then, yes, is a light for us walking forward. And so when Jesus here is giving his exposition of the law, it's going to, if you read it rightly, it's going to crush you. (laughs) That's That's what it's supposed to do. We, none of us, if, if you want, we'll get to this at the end of the sermon. I don't want to steal my own thunder. But, but we'll, we'll walk out of here. If, if you walk out of here thinking, oh, thank goodness I've met the bar. You have not heard what I'm saying this morning. You have not heard what Jesus is saying. This standard is perfect righteousness. Okay, so it's going to crush us and drive us to christ that's what the role of the law is so i want you to stay engaged as best as you can and i'll try to do my best to stay engaged through the whole thing because the law crushes and puts a person low that they might look up to find an answer outside of themselves to find a hope and a peace and a salvation from outside of themselves so this morning We are talking about this issue of lust, adultery. Actually, this section and the next section, they they kind of work together, but we're going to handle, Jim's going to handle this next text more on the issue of the sanctity of marriage or whatever you want, however you want to categorize that next week. We're just looking at this first section, verses 27 through 30. There are some presuppositions that I want to lay down. They aren't in the text, um, but I think they're good and right, and we need to mention them at some point. And so, so hopefully, um, w- making the, the role of the law clear to us, there are some things that I want us to make sure we are on the same page when it comes to these sorts of issues. The first thing is simply this. Attraction and desire are natural and good things. Like, these are good gifts that God has given to humanity. It is a natural and good part of the human reality. However... Because of the fall of man, because of sin, the brokenness of our world, and the brokenness of our own nature, good things become twisted. Good things become twisted. So what God has given us as a good and right thing for the propagation of the human species, really, it's, it's a... Human species, I'm not a Darwinist. For the, for the propagation of humanity, the desire, attraction is a good thing. It's, it's there, God-given, but... The brokenness of this world it bends things, it twists them, it perverts them, it gets them out of order. It takes good things and good things out of their context become bad things, uh, and and good things put in an ultimate sense become when they when they become God things that's a bad thing. But it's important to just I, I think to lay out that it is not that attraction and desire, if for instance, in the context of a of a loving, committed marriage or relationship between a man and a woman committed to each other for life is a good and glorious thing and, and, and should not be apologized for or embarrassed about at all. It is the way God has made it to be. The reason why I, I bring that up is that historically you can look through the history of the church and we see the pendulum swing from one end to the other. And either we take attraction and desire and we say, whatever you feel most in your heart, it is good and perfect and wonderful, run with it. Like that's the one end of the pendulum swing. And you have churches that are just, they are, they're totally open and no shame and no, you know, whatever. It's all, everything is fine because it's a natural desire inside of yourself. Every, no, nothing is off limits, do whatever you want. And then you have the other pendulum swing, which is like, Everything about this is evil and awful. Don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Stay away from it. Shut down and have almost uh, abstinence, even in the context of marriage. Like they would just just shun everything because it's so, it's so tempting and terrible. We have to stay away from it. And that is, not, that is not, I think, the biblical picture that we have. Attraction and delight in another person is not sinful when it is within the context of the marriage covenant that God established as a covenant between a man and a woman for a lifetime. That's okay. You're welcome. <laughs> that, that's, that's okay. All right. So I just want to lay that down because it's all, you know, there, I just I think that it's an important point to make. That's a presupposition. However, what happens at the fall? Adam and Eve are created with this natural desire for each other, good thing, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Sin comes in and it breaks this. It's broken, it's bent in upon itself. And so to get into the text then, Jesus opens up, he does this six times here at the end of chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is teaching authoritatively, right? This is this is not becoming from tradition from the other scribes and Pharisees, but because he is the one who is the writer of the law, he is the the word of God, he's the one who wrote the law, it is a perfect interpretation of what it means in this area to be holy and righteous. It's a commentary, right, on the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. But again, you can hear what he's fighting against. And the same we talked about last week with murder. He's fighting against this idea that, well, if adultery is just don't sleep with another man's wife, why don't I just go out and get another wife, make make, another woman, make her my wife, and then I've no longer committed adultery? Or, 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 some issue, or if this woman is not married, or you know, as long as I don't actually uh, become intimate with her, I haven't broken the law because the law is just do not actually commit adultery with another man's wife, not anything leading up to it. And, and Jesus is breaking all of that down. There's, there's much more at stake than just this external conformity. It's not the mere act of intimacy with someone else's wife. It is all the activities that lead up to such behavior. And I would say that these would apply for both genders, though it is talking about the man uh, having lustful intention with a woman. This applies across the board. Even the act of looking, Jesus says, with the eyes, with lustful intent, as the ESV puts it, it is heart adultery. So in the same way like last week, we talked about hating your brother, being mad at someone, anger, wishing them ill, is heart murder. It's, it's murder from the heart. It's not the act of murder, like of actual murder, but it is a heart murder. Well, this this looking with the eyes is not actual adultery in the, the uh, ex- ex- uh, external sense, but it is adultery of the heart. It is inappropriate desire toward another human with the eyes or with the imagination that is heart adultery. Jesus treats sin not as a surface issue, but as a heart issue. Jesus treats sin not as a surface issue, but a heart issue. We don't get to just make this physical list of here's all these things to just make sure I stay inside these boundaries and I'm going to be okay. Sin is much deeper than that. (laughs) Jesus treats sin not as a surface issue, but as a heart issue. Matthew 15, uh, verses 18 through 20, Jesus speaking there along the same lines, but he talks about where sin comes from. Matthew 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says this, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart... Not just the mouth, not some external uh, observances or uh, external act. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. That's the specific issue that he's addressing. But the principle is there. Sin is not just uh, a surface issue. It is a heart issue. Lloyd-Jones says this, he's t- and, and commenting on this passage, sin is not merely a matter of actions and deeds. It is something within the heart that leads to the action. His teaching, meaning Jesus's, his teaching is that what matters is this fell and foul power that is in human nature as a result of sin and the fall. Sin is not just the surface issue. There's a heart issue at work. That the work to be done in confronting your sin is not just merely, I've never physically done these, I've never actually murdered anyone. I've never actually committed adultery. Sin is much deeper, much more insidious, much more tricky than that, much deeper. And that is where Jesus is going after. And sin is also serious. It must be seen for what it is. A reality that leads to hell. There's just no other way to read this text. (laughs) Like, I'm not trying to be a bummer on a Sunday morning, but sin leads to hell. It's what Jesus says, right? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Why? It is better to go into heaven maimed. Other places he talks about this way. Cut off your feet, cut off your hand. It's better to enter into eternal life maimed than to, with all of your parts of your body, go into hell. That that's how serious sin is. That's the point of the teaching. The point is not to mutilate yourself. In fact, that would be a violation in some ways of the sixth commandment because it's it's murder of a of, of, of part of your body. So it, Jesus is not actually advocating for mutilation. Don't be, there's characters in the history of the Christian church that have taken this to uh I won't talk about the way they've taken these links, but they have done things to themselves that ought not to be done, taking this too literally. Jesus is simply saying this is serious, that this, this sin of your heart, if, if, in, if entertained, if pursued, if continued after, it leads to hell. There's, there is where sin leads. This is heavy and serious, and Jesus means it to be. Jesus means it to be. He does not want us to play around with light sins. Oh, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't, he's, Jesus is on a, a, a mission. The Holy Spirit is on a mission to eradicate sin from his people, and not just in some external way, but to deal with your very heart. The things that you think in your mind, the things that are buried deep inside of you, Jesus is on a mission to make us holy. And that's heavy and serious and terrifying because there's a standard here that none of us can meet with the serious of consequences. The serious of consequences. A.W. Pink, writing on the Sermon on the Mount, says this, no matter, he's going to make talk about other preachers here, but... He says, no matter how deplorable and general the failure of the modern pulpit be, let it be said emphatically that all of us are bound and must yet be judged by the holy law of God. And no repudiation thereof, no modifying of its high demands by unfaithful preachers can in any wise, ways justify our disobedience to God's commands. For some, the answer is just, this is a little too radical. (laughs) Let's just tone it down a notch. Let's just, Jesus is not all that serious. Don't you know, he's Vidal Sassoon Jesus, right? He's got great conditioner. He's got his VO5 oil in his, and he's walking in the lilies, and he just wants to, like, he's got lambs around him. He's just Jesus meek and mild and loving. He is Jesus meek and mild. He is Jesus loving. And one of the ways he loves us is helping us to kill the sin that would separate us from God. So Jesus gives these extreme examples, as we've mentioned. He uses the same illustration in Matthew chapter 18, verse 8. So then, to move on, I, is the point of the passage not fairly clear? <laughs> it's serious business. And it is not just some external, and really the principle here is with all sin. We just talked about murder this way. You're talking about lust and adultery. All sorts of sins that are welling up inside of you, are serious, and Jesus is saying, get rid of them, take extreme measures, get, be done with sin in every area. So I got a few application points then just to try to wrap this thing up a little bit. The first application point that I want us to think about and realize is that our culture is not a faithful standard of sexual purity. Maybe that need to be said, but I think we may be, we might help to say it. <laughs> Our culture is not a faithful standard of sexual purity. You can turn on your TV, uh, anything on the internet, anything that's watching the movie theater, anywhere you want to go, media companies, they are deciding what's appropriate for our viewing for the general world. They'll put their little, their little sticker on it, a PG or PG-13 or R or, or worse or whatever, then C-17. They'll put all their ratings on them and saying, oh, this is, this is what's appropriate for certain age levels. Our culture is not a faithful standard of sexual purity awareness that we need to view our world through the lenses that God has laid down for us that's where we need to start there is our baseline what does God say J.C. Ryle in his commentary not on this passage but later on in in the gospel of Luke J.C. Ryle says this let us strive to show the people of the world that we have no time for their mode of living Let us show them that we find life too precious to be spent in perpetual feasting, leisure, and pleasure, as if there were no death or judgment or life to come. We must not be spoon-fed by the culture around us, what the standards are for marriage, what the standards are for human sexuality, what the standards are on countless issues. Do not, it's easy, and that's an easy road to go. Where is the world leading the church, our culture, can, the church cannot adopt the culture standard for faithful, uh, faithfulness when it comes to purity. So then, secondly, do whatever it takes to remove the easy sources of sin. Everyone will find themselves at different levels uh, in regards to temptation or susceptibility to temptation. Um, you just, they're across the board on this. But Jesus says to cut out your eye if it causes you to sin. And honestly, the media influences of our lives, they are, they are a multi-lane interstate, running their thoughts, their views, their what sells into our minds. All traffic running, I feel like I've got to mention this, through a little pocket, about every one of us has gotten our phone. And our, and our, through a little device, every one of us has gotten our pockets. Phone, that's what I was trying to say. I just feel like I've got to mention this. It's so pervasive in our culture today. This and because even if it isn't sexual lust per se, a, a browsing of Instagram, of shopping is is a lust of a type. I want something that's not mine. I want something that's not. My life would be better if I had this thing that's not mine. That isn't this particular text, but I think it applies in the same way. So this this little device in our pocket is. Constantly throwing at us sources of sin. Can I just put this out here at a public, public statement? If you have uh, children or if you are in any way susceptible, which we, I, we live in a broken world, there are apps to get on your phone to help you cut out your eye and cut off your hand to stop these things. Covenant eyes is if you have a child that has a device that isn't monitored get Covenant Eyes. It's going to cost you monthly. This is so, I, I almost I feel silly like being this practical in a sermon. But, but, you know, there's an app called Canopy. My phone carries both Covenant Eyes and Canopy. Canopy is another app that actually will prevent illicit images from even appearing on your phone. That if you Google something and it, it won't even pull up the images. Okay, so Covenant Eyes is a reporting software and I'd, I would encourage everyone to seriously consider, if this thing causes you problems, take every drastic measure. Maybe go down to a dumb phone. Like, that's honestly, if, if, this, if this device in your pocket is causing you to sin, get rid of it. Like, no joke. It is better. It is, yes, Evan's got, his, got to get a dumb phone like Evan, no doubt. Do it. And, and it's kind of silly, but I, you could take this parable, better to enter heaven with a dumb phone than to take your smartphone to hell. That's the point. I mean, you know, better to enter heaven with a smartphone with all sorts of restrictions, and I've got to go to a VPN, and it's all these, and it slows down my connection, whatever. Better to go to heaven with that than to go to hell with it. Don't watch shows that depict illicit scenes. I listened to a podcast on this issue, and it it had this litmus test. If you wouldn't watch your neighbors engage in that activity... A screen doesn't make it better. If you wouldn't open your neighbor's windows and watch what they're doing, how is it much different watching them do it on a TV screen? I mean, there there are serious things to consider. Don't read or listen to things that spark your imagination in ways that don't honor Jesus. Luther has this quote, I think it's a proverb, I couldn't find the reference, but I think it's a proverb that he kind of quotes, but saying this, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you don't have to let them build a nest. And it's talking about this issue of sin, that there's, we, are, we are creatures, we are fallen creatures. In some sense, it is impossible to stop the birds, to stop the temptations from flying over your head. But you don't have to let them build a nest. And this is not condemning the passing thought, the passing glance, the, the passing moment where you're like, oh, I, I'm, I'm thinking in this way but it's saying, don't dwell there. And most importantly, I'd say, don't live around a bunch of bird feeders. Like, not only do you not have to let the birds make a nest in your head, you don't have to put a bunch of bird feeders around, which is what I think the phone in your pocket for many of us is, or the television screen, or whatever whatever it may be, don't live around a bunch of bird feeders, okay? You can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you don't have to let them build a nest. Almost lastly... We should work hard to value people as image bearers in the deep need and mercy and grace of God. In deep need of the mercy and grace of God. You look around town and this, we we are such an objectifying culture. We commodify everything. And there's the commodification of people. Which is really, when you think about it, dirty and gross and awful. Awful. But when it comes to our modern culture and its, its, its media, uh, what it puts out there, it really is about the commodification of people. De- it's dehumanizing image bearers. When it comes to issues like this of intimacy outside of a faithful covenant marriage, what it really is doing is it is dehumanizing image bearers. What lust does, and really so much of the LGBTQIA revolution, so much of what it does is that it reduces all of identity down to just sexuality. And it makes us just sexual people. And, you, and you're looking around the world and what lust does for so many people is you look around the world and all you see are potential targets or objects of your pred- pred- predation, objects for you to go after. And it's dehumanizing of people. While it is obviously um, obvious it was obviously obvious. Absolutely obvious and true that we are at some level sexual creatures, being necessary at a minimum for the propagation of humanity. It was never meant to be the totality of who we are. You're far more than that. And your neighbor is far more than that, too. And if 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 we if we don't take this seriously and we allow that, what if, as we get into my circle, we talk about. Giving every man, woman, and child the repeated opportunity to hear the gospel, you know what's going to get in the way of that? Is viewing them as objects for you to fantasize about, whatever it may be. Serious, serious stuff. When we reduce ourselves to just sexuality, uh, we reduce others, we are dehumanizing them. When you see someone and reduce them to just what they can do to satiate you, you are denying those individuals their God-given dignity as unique image bearers. So, crush, 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 crush. Uh, the law is meant to be a mirror. And I said, oh my gosh, this is, I'm, in, I'm, in bad, I'm in a bad way. What does this text then? Ultimately, all of those applications, what does, should it lastly cause us to do? Flee, run to Christ. You have failed, but he did not. Look to his work upon the cross that works for your forgiveness. Rejoice in him. Put him, as Jim was speaking this this morning, as the chief treasure of your life. Rejoice in him and then walk out your life desperate for him to empower you by the Holy Spirit of a life of obedience that honors your king. The thrust of this passage, really, is to get us to cry out for saving and striving then to please the king. Anyone who hears this incredible standard for holiness ought first of all to cry out, God, have mercy. I don't, I'm not going to go around the room, but in, in our broken culture, I don't care how old you, how many years you've been living through the culture, our broken culture, no one walks away from this passage pristine. <laughs> we all walk away from this passage in a heap of trouble. And so the the mirror of the law there crushes us I don't. If anyone walks away from this and, and thinks, oh, great me, then you're not seeing it. Lloyd-Jones again, he says that God forbid that any of us should be able to look at this holy law of God and feel satisfied. If we do not feel unclean at this moment, God have mercy on us. If we can conceivably be satisfied with our lives because we've never committed an act of adultery or of murder or of any one of these things... I say that we do not know ourselves nor the blackness and foulness of our own hearts. We must listen to the teaching of the blessed Son of God and examine ourselves, examine our thoughts, our desires, and our imagination. And unless we feel that we are vile and foul and need to be washed and cleansed, unless we feel utterly helpless with a terrible poverty of spirit and are hungering then, thirsting after righteousness, I say, God have mercy upon us. The law comes to us as a mirror. Let it do its work. Let it do its work. Let it convict. Let it crush us. Let us don't shrink from that conviction. To deny the conviction is to embrace the sin and to march down the path to hell. Instead, face it, confess it, repent from it. And church, run to Jesus. Run to Christ. Run to Christ who perfectly kept the law lived righteously he fulfilled this command here he perfectly fulfilled this command and he took our punishment the wrath that we have coming to us because of this christ shouldered upon his own back by his stripes we are healed we are delivered we are made whole so that we here in this place this morning, we can run to Christ, we can cling to his mercy and grace. Jesus died to forgive you from the penalty of sin, to deliver you from the power of sin and out of its bondage, and to one day fully and finally be be free from the presence of sin. So then as the law brings conviction, let it, by the power of the Holy Spirit, direct us to live as God would desire us to live, glad in Jesus Happy in Him and what He has done to deliver us from our bondage and empowered by Him to live as the King's people. Let's pray. Father, I know the heaviness of a passage like this in my own life, God. And Father, I pray that in the midst of all of this, as we are driven to the desperation of our own sin, that God, it does cause us we're getting just low enough to finally be able to see Jesus, (laughs) to see him for who he is. God, as we are laid low by the law, God, my prayer, every heart in this place this morning that is maybe under the weight of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in various areas of their life, God, may they get just low enough or finally get low enough to see Jesus, to see you for who you are, this great Savior who rescues us out of our bondage to sin and death and and liberates us, empowers us then to walk out mortifying sin and living in a way that glorifies you. Father, only you can do that in the hearts and I pray that you would in each one of us this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.